Remain standing uh, for the reading of God's Word this morning. And you can uh, open your Bible or grab a Bible in front of you in the chair before you and uh, turn to Psalm 145. But uh, before we read, let's go ahead and pray. Heavenly Father, you are a great and awesome God, and we give you praise. There is no one like you. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would uh, soften our hearts and open our ears this morning to hear your word being preached. We pray that you would send your Holy Spirit upon uh, Pastor Adam this morning and help him to preach your word in spirit and in truth. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Psalm 145, I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall commend your works to another, and shall declare your mighty acts. On the glorious splendor of your majesty, and on the wondrous works I will meditate. They shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds, and I will declare your greatness. They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness, and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. All your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and all your saints shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power, to make known to the children of man your mighty deeds and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures throughout all generations. The Lord is faithful in all his words and kind in all his works. The Lord upholds all who are falling and raises up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you, and you give them their food in due season. You open your hand, you satisfy the desire of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desire of those who fear him. He also hears their cry and saves them. The Lord preserves all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. My mouth will speak the praise of the Lord and let all flesh bless his holy name forever and ever. This is the word of the Lord. You may have a seat. Good morning. We're continuing our series through the book of Exodus, and if you'd like to join me this morning in Exodus chapter 14, we're going to look at the parting of the Red Sea. Every so often we come to a section of the Bible that is very intimidating to preach, and this is one of those passages. It's the parting of the Red Sea. It's like one of the one of the most iconic and important things that happens in the Bible. Uh, last week we did Passover, so we're hitting a whole bunch of super high marks here in the Scripture. So, um, so my prayer also, along with Joe, is that God would speak to us here this morning. I'll begin in Exodus chapter 14. Uh, I'm going to go through the passage and make a few comments as we go along, and then uh, we'll, we'll look at some implications of the passage toward the end. Exodus chapter 14, verse 1, I'll read the first four verses. Then the Lord said to Moses, tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pi-Haharoth between Migdol and the sea in front of Baal-Zaphon. You shall encamp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, they're wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. 
and I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord, and they did so. So this showdown could have happened in a whole bunch of different ways. But God is emphasizing his control or his sovereignty over the situation by allowing them to go to a certain place and then actually saying, hang on, I'd actually like you to come back. And what I want you to do is come back to a place of military vulnerability because here's the deal. We want to entice Pharaoh out to the desert so I can kill him. So God hardens Pharaoh's heart. Again, probably Uh, This means some kind of a deep-set anger or stubbornness or irrationality, whatever that may be. Uh, All of it hardened toward what Moses had said to Pharaoh over and over and the obvious rational implications of what, what what Pharaoh should be thinking as a result of the ten plagues. So Pharaoh is hardened toward this by God. And all of it leading to this last final confrontation. And God repeats his purpose here. We've seen this before as God explains why he's doing the ten plagues, why he's going to all these lengths in order to publicly defeat and really humiliate Pharaoh. Uh, And he repeats that purpose here. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And this is not an evangelistic type of knowing. This is a, as you sink down in your doom, you will know that I am the Lord. Uh, God has already defeated Pharaoh's gods. Uh, We've seen how several of those plagues were aimed at some of the popular uh, lowercase g gods of the day, and now God is going to destroy Pharaoh's army. And all of this was public. Generations later, you remember Eli, and he had a couple of wicked sons, the the Bible actually uses the word worthless. They were worthless sons, and they were in charge of the temple at the time, Hophni and Phineas. and they decided to take the ark into battle. I think we talked about this last week, and here, here this passage comes up again, where they take the ark into battle like a good luck charm. They end up losing the ark and dying in the process. And so the ark goes from city to city throughout Philistine territory, uh, and wherever it goes, people go into this crazy terror and the men get these very embarrassing tumors and so at some point they ask their diviners what they should do about this they can't figure out what to do with this gold box and uh first samuel 6 6 the diviners so these are philistine like uh false priests all right and the and the and they say why should you harden your hearts as the egyptians and pharaoh hardened their hearts this is hundreds of years later And he had dealt severely with them. Did they not send the people away and they departed? So so this confrontation between Yahweh and Pharaoh was public to the extent that it actually influenced foreign policy uh, for a very long time. I would even suggest that during the Six-Day War, people couldn't help but make this kind of a a connection in 1967. So So this is about God totally defeating his enemies and doing it public for eternal global glory. Verse 5, when the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people. Now, so this could be a change that he just literally changed his mind. It could also be that it is finally sunk into Pharaoh that they are not going out into the wilderness for three days to worship and then they're going to come back. It may have finally occurred to Pharaoh that they are gone and they are not coming back. So he realizes this, this slave labor, which he's using for building who knows what, 
uh, which we can now go and visit, uh, they're gone. And so Pharaoh, uh, Pharaoh said, what is this we have done that we have let Israel go from serving us? So he made ready his chariot and took his army with him and took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. So this is the best military on earth, and this is the best part of Pharaoh's military, these, uh, these chariots. So there's no fooling around here. This is super intimidating. Verse 8, and the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. That word defiantly is translated in all kinds of different words, uh, different ways in different translations, and scholars don't really know what it means. So we'll just move on here. Verse 9, the Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army, and overtook them encamped at the sea by Pihaharoth in front of Baal-Zaphon, exactly where God wanted them, as you see back there in verse 2. Verse 10, when Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. Now, that's a little bit understandable because Pharaoh's army would have been very intimidating. But this is also not understandable because, first of all, God tells them this is going to happen in verse 1, and also... God has already proven his dominance over Pharaoh during the ten plagues. Um, So God has proven his dominance. God has proven his faithfulness. uh, And so the people deserve a rebuke, and they will get one. But first, let's hear their exact words. Here's what they say. There's almost humor going on here because of what they say. It says, And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, and they said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians, for it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. Now, the problem here is not that they felt afraid when they saw Pharaoh's army. It is not that they felt afraid when they saw Pharaoh's army. When Libby and I lived in Israel, we happened to see two American motorcades because this was right before Yitzhak Rabin was shot and uh, Clinton and I think it was first Al Gore came to Israel in order to meet with Rabin. And so we saw both of these motorcades, one of them by accident, which was really a disturbing thing to see by accident, an American motorcade in the Middle East is really something to see. The other one, we stood in line for a really long time. We could only get to where we wanted to go by showing an American passport. Uh, An American motorcade in the Middle East is something that makes you feel very small. Uh, Those of you in the military know this kind of a thing better than anyone, so I'm not sure that it's possible to see Pharaoh's elite army coming at you and not feel fear. The problem was not the fear The problem was that the fear got a hold of them. The fear took over. The fear got out of control to the point that they said some really, really stupid things. It was a total spiritual meltdown. These people had just witnessed the Passover, which followed nine plagues and a few other miracles, but they lost it when they saw Pharaoh's army coming at them. If you look down at verse 31... It's the end of the story. So I'm sorry if you don't know the end of this story. Pharaoh dies at the end. So I'm giving that away. I'm sorry about that. But at the very end of this story in verse 31, 
My, gra- my grandma used to do that in movies. He's so nice, but he dies at the end. So. Okay, so Pharaoh dies at the end. But if you look down at 31, at the end of the story, it says, Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, so the people feared the Lord. And they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. So one of the subplots of this whole story is misplaced fear and realigned fear. So they learn some doctrine throughout these events. They learn some theology, and as a result, their fear goes from here to here. Now they fear the Lord, which is where our fear ought to be. Verse 13. And Moses said to the people, fear not, stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. Uh, I'll go on here in a second. Hebrew scholars would say that this is not kind of a calming words like everybody calm down. It's going to be okay. It's more of a snapping at them. And we're going to see more of this later when the people say and do dumb things and Moses snaps at them. And eventually we see that um, in, in the most powerful way when he strikes the rock. Uh, so the, these are kind of uh, some hints of things to come. Verse 14 This is, I think, one of the most important sentences in all of Exodus. So verse 14, the Lord will fight for you and you have only to be silent. The Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? So you can just see Moses here. He's frustrated with the people and now God's mad at him. So he's just like, the Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground, and I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and over all his host, his chariots and his horsemen, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. That's a repeat of verse 4. And that is a repeat of what we've seen throughout the plagues. God is doubly emphasizing and repeating this idea that God has arranged these situations and he puts Israel exactly where he wants them in a position of military vulnerability so that Pharaoh comes after and he entices Pharaoh to this spot so that Pharaoh's army will die. That raises really interesting questions about what God is like. But regardless of how you conclude all of that, Here's, I think, the theological lesson we got to take away, however we solve the issue of the problem of evil and so on. There is only one God worthy of fear. There is one God worthy of fear. This God does stuff like this. And he is the only being worthy of this kind of fear. Verse 19, then, this is so cool. This is so awesome. Just imagine this. Then the angel of God, who was going before the host of Israel, moved and went behind them, which does make you wonder, how is it that they're freaking out so bad when there's an angel of God there? But whatever. The angel of God, who was going before the host of Israel, moved and went behind them, and the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between them and the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness. And it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. So we meet God in early Exodus, and he gives us his personal name and so on. And so uh, uh, (laughs) Joseph, 
Moses meets him there at the beginning of Exodus in a burning bush. Now you multiply that by about 100 because there are hundreds of thousands of people that have now faced each other off. 600,000 men plus women and children just on Israel's side. So this was not just a little bush. But this fire was so big, this flame was so massive that it separated these two armies. So pretty visual, pretty awesome story. You can imagine this happening. Verse 21, then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land and the waters were divided. So this isn't really a Charlton Heston thing here. And it's not a Prince of Egypt thing here. I think that movie is great, Prince of Egypt. But it, this did not happen in 10 seconds. But this is a howling wind behind them, separating stuff with ocean behind them. And in front of them, they got this huge fire going that's separating them. They can barely see over the flames. Pharaoh's elite army. So probably not a lot of sleeping happening that night. Verse 22, and the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots and his horsemen. And in the morning watch, so again, this is a long period of time. In Prince of Egypt, it takes about half a song for this to happen, but we're talking about hundreds of thousands of people that are on the move here. So it's a long period of time. Verse 24, And in the morning watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptian says, Let's get out of here. That's the vernacular. Let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots, upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen. Of all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea, not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground, through the sea and the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians so the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. So that would be like one of the most awesome theology classes that anyone's ever taken. They observed certain attributes of God, which would usually be the second section of a systematic theology. So they're sitting there watching God's attributes on display, and the result of this is they feared the Lord and believed his servant. So that last sentence functions a little bit like a moral to the story. There's power, there's fear, there's belief, and those three words would be the theme words for this whole story in Exodus 14. A couple of ideas that I'd like to explore in this account as we look back on this. The first thing that I'd like to talk about is the sea and why the sea shows up over and over in important stories in the Bible. And then the second one, which I will do more briefly, 
is on the subject of fear. But first, let's talk about the sea. There are a lot of important Bible events that relate to water. Have you ever thought about that? Creation, the flood with Noah and whatever, parting the Red Sea, crossing the Jordan, Jesus walking on the Sea of Galilee, all kinds of prophecies about streams coming from Mount Zion and so on. So there may be some interesting symbolism here. If we play around with this a bit, we might see some interesting symbolism that helps us to interpret the passage even deeper and understand why it is, of all the ways that God could have killed Pharaoh's army, why did he do it by drowning? So let's begin with Genesis 1. The purpose of the six days of creation seems to be God bringing order to all things. We're told in Genesis 1.1 that the earth was formless and void. It was chaos. And so God brought order and gave all things purpose. And so creation is a cycle of threes. There's one, two, three, four, five, six, and they match. So day one, he separated light from darkness. Day four, he created the lights in the heavens. Day two, he separated the waters from the waters. And day five, he let the waters swim or swarm with creatures. Day three, he created dry land and the seas were arranged. And day six, he created the living creatures and the livestock and mankind that lived on that dry land. So you've got a, a cycle of threes that match each other. That's two cycles of three, and it's ordered. It is under God, and it is given purpose. He says light is for this and such. Humanity is supposed to do this and such, rule and keep. All of it arranged under God and given a purpose under God. Now, in contrast to all of that, Pharaoh would like to live outside God's rule, Right? Which is like saying that you would like to live outside creation. If creation is more than just making matter exist, but if creation is mainly giving purpose under God's rule, then Pharaoh rejects the very purpose of creation. He rules himself. He chooses other gods. And so the plagues are a form of poetic justice. If you want to live outside creation, all right, here's what that looks like. It's formless and void, darkness, chaos, it's uninhabitable death. Now, the plagues also come in a cycle of threes, which we saw when we did the plagues, a cycle of threes, and the cap of it was number 10, Passover. The last plague was also a day of rest, except that it wasn't God who rested this time. It was humanity that rested while God worked salvation. So now, what happens on the very first day of the creation cycle, separating light from darkness? What happened on the last day of the plague cycle? separating light from darkness. Exodus 10.22, there was pitch darkness in all the land of Egypt, three days. They did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days. But all the people of Israel had light where they lived, a separation of light and darkness. Is that a coincidence that the first day of the first three cycle in creation is the separation of light and darkness, and the last day of the third plague cycle is the separation of light and darkness? Pharaoh wants to live outside the created order, so God gives him exactly what he wants, life outside creation. The plagues undo the six days of creation, which results in total annihilation. In this universe, God is required to sustain life. God's order is required to sustain, to sustain life. So it's not only the three plague cycles, but here at the Red Sea parting, you have this undoing of creation. 
the scene was set in verse 18. The armies are facing each other. So you think there's going to be a battle. But there's a pause. What happens during that pause? Then the angel of God, who was going before the host of Israel, moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. That's a separation. And what is he separating? He's separating his people who will live under his rule versus his enemies who have chosen to live outside his rule. Verse 20, and there was the cloud and the darkness. Darkness. Darkness, representing so many things in Scripture, especially this pre-creation idea of God infusing formless and void with light and order. But for Pharaoh, just before his doom, just like the plague right before Passover, which was death, the last clue that creation will be made or unmade is darkness. You've seen a campfire at night, and you know what this is like. They blind you to everything outside the immediate area. If you walk away from the fire, you can see all kinds of things by the moonlight or whatever. But when you're near the fire, that's all that is. So imagine this fire that was so huge that it separated hundreds of thousands of people. You have this light protecting God's people, and then you have darkness, a separation. Sounds like day one of creation. And then more Genesis language. The waters are separated, literally walls on each side. Water, separated from water, day two of creation. And then you have God's people that walk through on what? Dry land, day three of creation. But for Pharaoh, all the opposite of that is happening. Dry land disappears. The waters unseparate. The army dies in this murky darkness. So for God's people, the people of the Lamb, God is re-entering formless and void in order to bring them safely to the promised land just like he did at Eden, just like he will do in the new heavens and the new earth. But for all who reject God, he unmakes that first chapter of Genesis so that formless and void crash down to total annihilation. Therefore, we should trust him. We should obey him. We should remove ourselves from worldliness to worship him because this is what God is after. He's making a people for himself. We ought to repent and trust in the Passover lamb, Jesus Christ, and be reconciled to God. If we do that, we will be saved. Now, a couple more things just to say about the sea before we switch to the subject of fear. When do you think Satan rebelled against God? We're not really told that story. Milton does a good job of uh, imagining what that might be like. But when did Satan rebel against God? Certainly before Genesis 3, where he appears to tempt Eve, maybe even before Genesis 1. It's interesting that ancient myths tell the story of a sea monster named Rahab that was responsible for all kinds of disorder in creation and that the God inserts himself into that disorder that Rahab caused and defeated her and made a place where humanity could live. That would be just ancient myths. Now you say, well, who cares about ancient myths? Why is our pastor talking about ancient myths from behind the pulpit? First of all, sometimes... A compelling story has a small element of truth. The other thing I would say is that the writers Job and Psalms and even Isaiah mention the monster Rahab. Here she is in Job 26.12. By his power, he stilled the sea. By his understanding, he shattered Rahab. Well, why would God, why would the writer, why, why would Job be 
thinking or talking about this ancient myth. Psalm 89.10, O Lord God of hosts, who is mighty as you are, who is mighty as you are, O Lord, with your faithfulness all around you. You rule the raging of the sea. When its, ra- when its waves rise, you still them. You crushed Rahab like a carcass. You scattered your enemies with your mighty arm. Also, Psalm 74.12, my God, my king, is from of old, working salvation in the midst of the earth. You divided the sea by your might. You broke the heads of the sea monsters on the waters. The Holman Illustrated Bible Dictionary says that Rahab is a primeval sea monster representing the forces of chaos that God overcame in creation. The Bible seems totally comfortable with this idea that God defeated a monster in Genesis 1 when he did his separations that resulted in the sustaining of life. Psalms, Job, even Isaiah. Now these guys are poets, right? So it might just be poetic license. But what if some cosmic battle was fought and won on earth during the six days of creation when God made a people for himself? What if formless and void means more than arranging molecules? What if it was also divine battle? And what if that sequence was repeated during the Exodus? God wanted people living and worshiping safely in the promised land. And someone needed to be defeated in order for that rescue to happen. Now, Pharaoh was a bad guy, but 1 Corinthians 10.20 tells us that demonic powers were behind the ancient gods. The Exodus was more than just defeating Pharaoh. It was defeating the demonic powers in order to make a people for himself. And what if that same thing was repeated again during the Jewish exile? Hundreds of years later, when the prophets called on God to do another exodus, do it again. Let's have a three-peat, God. Isaiah 51.9, awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord. Awake as in the days of old, the generations of long ago. Was it not you who cut Rahab in pieces, who pierced the dragon? Was it not you who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep, who made the depths of the sea a way for the redeemed to pass over? And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. So again, that's after the exile, the people of God ransomed and surrounded by creation themes. Same thing happened at the cross and the empty tomb. The ultimate victory of God over the satanic prince of this world. At the cross, Jesus defeated sin and death and Satan by stripping them of power and freeing believers to live inside the kingdom, that safe place. And this same thing will happen again during the end times. The book of Revelation tells us about a beast that comes from the sea and the people of earth And Revelation 13 worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast and who can fight against it? That's a monster that comes out of the sea and people worship it. Same thing prophesied in Daniel 7, although there there are four beasts who walk out of the sea to terrify mankind during the end times. Revelation 16, an angel pours out a bowl of God's wrath into the sea and everything in the sea dies. Revelation 20, the sea finally gives up its dead Revelation 21, the great climax of the Bible, after Satan is thrown into a lake of fire and sulfur, 
Revelation 21.1, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. That's all apocalyptic language, I know. It may just be symbols and hints. In ancient cultures, the sea represented the demonic realm. It was scary. They didn't have submarines. You fall out of your boat and a leviathan eats you. It's a, star, it's a dark, terrifying place. So it's probably just apocalyptic symbolism. But isn't it interesting that Jesus came and walked on it? Walked on it. During a storm, no less. Psalm 93, 4 Mightier than the thunders of many waters, mightier than the waves of the sea, the Lord on high is mighty. Psalm 65, 7, who stills the roaring of the seas, the roaring of their waves, the tumult of the peoples, so that those who dwell at the ends of the earth are in awe at your signs. You make the going out of the morning and the evening to shout for joy. So however we interpret all of this Rahab stuff, it is clear that God rules creation. God is not dominated or surprised by demonic powers that enslave people, but he defeats them in order to make a people for himself. And he extends that power and authority to the church, which is designed for the purpose of pushing back the gates of hell. Luke 10, 17 The 72 returned with joy saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. In Exodus chapter 1, Pharaoh ordered that all of the Jewish male babies be thrown into the Nile and killed. It was a mass murder. And Moses was saved in a little ark from the waters that should have killed him. Interesting that the first plague turned the Nile into blood. Interesting that Pharaoh's army died by drowning. The Bible is filled with repeats. And so we learn and we relearn our theology that God is all-powerful. All things exist for his glory. No one opposes him and lives. So trust in the lamb. Obey him and he will save you. Okay, so now let's talk about fear. I've just got one page on fear. We're almost done. And then a little tiny conclusion. At the end of this account, verse 31, Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. And we've got to emphasize that power. This is a massive display of God's power, which we are still talking about thousands of years later. It was awesome. It was totally mind-blowing awesome. Israel saw that so the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and, his, and in his servant Moses, at least for a couple of chapters. Great power should be feared. We are modern people and we like to think we can isolate ourselves from real trouble, but great power should be feared. I am not going to make the argument here this morning that if you're a good little Christian, you're not going to be afraid of things like tsunamis and... <laughs> burglars or perversion those things are scary 
Mature Christians don't look at scary things and say, oh, that's no big deal. It would be irrational to see an elite army coming at you and not have some kind of a heart problem. That's irrational. But mature Christians believe something very important about God. We believe not just a Sunday school belief, but deep in your bones, we believe that God is glorious and powerful. And we know that he is not tame. He makes thunder. He makes great white sharks. He lures uh, Pharaoh's army out into the desert so he can kill them. And then boasts about that for thousands of years. This is a God worthy of real fear, more fear than tsunamis and things like this. Psalm 145 We read this earlier this morning. I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised and his greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works I will meditate. They shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds And I will declare your greatness. They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. That's just part of that psalm. So, look, do we face scary situations? Yeah, of course. Sickness, poverty, war, there's lots of things to be scared of. But we must not lose our minds in those situations. We must not lose our confidence and an all-powerful promise-making God. There is a greater power than these things we fear. There is a greater power, one true God who makes covenantal promises to people like you and me. He demands obedience. He is after worship. He heroically enters the universe, defeating many enemies to make a people for himself who dwell in safe, joyful peace forever and ever. All who oppose him will die. All who repent and believe will be saved. Nebuchadnezzar, the foreign king, has one of my favorite comments. He has a famously humiliating experience. And he says this, and I'll close with his words from Daniel 4. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven. For all his works are right, and his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. (laughs) Let's close. God in heaven, you are greater than we can imagine. I pray that you would help us to honor you more by understanding your great power and majesty and awesomeness. I pray that you would help us to honor you by fearing you appropriately. God, we also thank you that you are incredibly gracious, more gracious than we can imagine or dream. I pray that you would help us to honor you by trusting in the Lamb, Jesus Christ, to pay the penalty for our sins so that we can be reconciled to you forever and ever. Lord God, I pray that you would help us by your powerful Holy Spirit, to understand this theology so that our hearts would be filled with fear and joy. 
with reverence and with laughter in your presence. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, just this being in contrast, when we look-